We are in the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 13 through 31 tonight. Mark 10, verses 13 through 31. Turn there uh, with me, if you will, to Mark 10, starting at verse 13. we got a lot to cover. I feel like I say that most weekends. And we'll see where it takes us. I might have prepared a little bit too much. I'm not sure, but uh, we'll just play it by ear. That's okay. All right. Mark 10, starting in verse 13. And they were bringing children to Jesus so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant, very angry, and he said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Fitting passage for our youth being up at a lake learning about God's word. He says, Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Wow, strong words. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Our next stanza, verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, Jesus said. Do not murder, commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, or he says to Jesus, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. And Jesus, uh, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, however, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving. For he was the uh, he was one who owned much property. Our next stanza, verse twenty-three. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, "How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God." The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, "Children, everybody, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God, whether you're rich or not." It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, with you, with people, it is impossible, but not with me or not with God, for all things are possible with God. On our last stanza, Peter began to say to him, behold, we have left everything and followed you, Jesus. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, as well as the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last And the last first, let's pray. God, have your way with us this evening through your word. Mold us and shape us into the image of your son. Do what you want with us, Lord, through your holy word, your mighty word. Lord, speak to us through your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you come alongside us as you challenge us to grow. You have great things in store for your children. Help us to see that. Help us to trust you. We love you and we fix our gaze upon you tonight. 
In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. So here's our outline for uh, tonight. <laughs> the Peter Pan principle. Right? you got to love that, right? I don't ever, 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 ever want to grow up. And that's kind of what those verses are talking about. We grow up, we get mature, and quite frankly, some things go a little south in our walk with the Lord. And we're going to unpack that a little bit. And then the power of one, when Jesus says to the rich young ruler, there's one thing you lack. It only takes one thing to mess up our relationship with the Lord. It doesn't take 12. I heard years ago, if you want to break up with somebody, you know, whatever they say, you don't need 12 reasons to break up with somebody. You only need one good reason to break up with somebody. You only need one reason to break up with God. You only need one thing to happen for your relationship with the Lord and even with other people to be severed. And so the power of one. And then rich man, poor man in verses 23 through 27. And then the opposite, a poor man and then a rich man in our final verses. I hope we can get to number four as well. We may not be able to, and that's okay. As an overview, kind of stick you know, in chapter 10 here with me. Let's take a look at the underlying focus of our text. We have verses 13 to 31. That's 19 verses. And what's the underlying focus for this chunk of Scripture from 13 to 31? You may have heard the saying that you know, always begin with the end in mind. So for us to unpack this, we have to take a look at the end before we begin. Make sense? So what is the end here in these 19 verses? It's found in all four of the stanzas that I just pointed out. The end, if you will, is the kingdom of God. Or it's also referred to in our text as eternal life. It's also referred to in in our text as being saved. That all means the same thing. Kingdom of God, eternal life, and being saved. means the same thing. Check out stanza 1, which is verses 13 through 16. You'll find it in verse 14. You'll find kingdom of God. Permit the children to come for the kingdom of God belongs to them. Verse 15, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God will not enter. In our next stanza, 17 through 22, we see in verse 17 where the rich young ruler says at the end, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life or the kingdom of God? And then we see it in our next stanza, 23 through 27. We see it in verses 23, 24, 25, and 26. Check out verse 23. He says, how hard will it be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? Verse 24, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And then in verse 26, then who can be saved? All the same thing. In our last stanza, verses 28 through 31, we'll see it again in verse 30. And he says, in the age to come, at the end of 30, in the age to come, eternal life. And so this whole chunk is all about the kingdom of God, eternal life, being saved. And to the degree that that's important to you, then we better pay attention to what these verses have to say. Amen? So what about it? What seems to be the question about this kingdom of God, this eternal life, this idea of being saved? How does one obtain it? or accomplish it, or achieve it. As the rich young ruler asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Our text points us to another word throughout uh, these 19 verses. And that word is enter. Look at verse 15. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, we need to pay attention. We see those words as well in 23, 24, and 25. Take a look. How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. 24, children, it's hard to enter the kingdom. 
verse 25. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And we see it also in verse 17 when the rich young ruler says, what must I do to inherit or enter eternal life? So, we've established two things. There's a kingdom of God, eternal life, this idea of being saved. And that we're, there's an invitation for us to enter into that place. Amen? But how? But how? Verse 15. Check out verse 15. This is kind of the key verse of our whole context. Truly I say to you, anyone who's listening to the words of our Heavenly Father in our Lord Jesus Christ, truly I say to you, Jesus said, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. So there's a kingdom of God. We're to enter it. But unless we become like a child or like children, we don't have a chance or a prayer. Wow. I'm telling you, as we get mature and we start to act like adults, sometimes it can make some things go a little south in our walk with the Lord. What a sobering truth that verse 15 is. It's a game changer, wouldn't you agree? It's a game changer. It defines everything for us. We must receive. We must receive the kingdom of God like a child in order to enter the kingdom of God. We don't enter it like a child. We receive it like a child. Everything God has for us, everything Jesus teaches us, everything in our followership of Him is how we receive it. Do we receive it like a child? Hmm. And He says, look at these choice, the choice of words in, in verse 15. He says, truly... When we say the word, it's the same word as amen. I think we've discussed this before. The word truly is the exact same word. It's amen or amen or amen. It's the same word, which we usually put at the end of something. But Jesus almost always puts it at the beginning. Truly means so it is. Let it be. Let it be firm or let it be sure. Strong words. And then he says, whoever, truly I say to you, whoever, that means everyone and anyone. No one is exempt, not even the rich young ruler that comes later. And he says, unless you receive it like the kingdom of God, whoever, whoever, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive it like the child will not enter it at all. Very, very, very strong words in that verse. Our text for today is pretty doggone clear. There is a kingdom of God. Eternal life, being saved. We can enter it. And Jesus tells us how we must receive it like children. So let's do our first stanza, verses 13 through 16. The Peter Pan principle. And the key verse again is verse 15. I shared some stats last week. I got some more this week. Dr. Horatius Bonner points to the spiritual history of 253 Christians, that people that were converted to Christianity with whom he knew over his lifetime. And he says this, that those that were saved under the age of 20 were 138 of those 253, over 50%. Those between the ages of 20 and 30, there was 85 so, so far, you've got 223 out of 253 were saved before the age of 30. Between the ages of 30 and 40, only 22 out of 253 were saved between the ages of 30 and 40. 
between the ages of 40 and 50, there was only four that he knew out of the 253 that were saved. Between the ages of 40 and 50. Between 50 and 60, he knew three. Between 60 and 70, he knew one. And over 70, he did not know of any. Dr. M. R. Dahan once quoted these startling figures. He said, after the age of 35, only one in 50,000 will accept Christ. It's not good. It's a bad odds. After the age of 45, only one in 300,000 will come to know Christ. After age 70, only one in nearly a million is converted. Polycarp, whom some of you may know that name, a courageous early church martyr, was converted at the age of nine. Jonathan Edwards, who I quoted a couple weeks ago, perhaps the mightiest intellect of the American pulpit, was saved at the age of seven. Count Zinzendorf, leader of the Moravians, signed his name to his covenant when he was four with his Lord. And he wrote this, Dear Savior, do thou be mine, and I will be thine. Four. Four years old. Matthew Henry, who I love, the great commentator, was converted at the age of 11, and Charles Spurgeon was awakened spiritually at the age of 12. Spurgeon says this when he was pastoring a church. He says, I have, during the past year, received 40 or 50 children into church membership. Among those, I have had uh, at any time to exclude from church fellowship out of a church of 2,700. I've never had to exclude a single one who was received while yet a child. Teachers and superintendents should not merely believe in the possibility of early conversion, but in the frequency of it. We must be like children. As we have established, verse 15 gives us some pretty clear directions as followers and disciples of Christ. Not simply as a means to an end, though. Not simply so we can get to the kingdom of God. Although that's fine. By itself, that's fine. But not simply for that. But for the present life as well. It's for our present life as well. God has so much in store for us today as well as our future, as well as the kingdom of God, as well as eternal life. Praise be to our God. Check out John chapter 10. A little to the right, John chapter 10, verses 9, 10, and 11. John 10, 9, 10, and 11. Jesus says, I'm the door. Right? You have to enter. We talked about entering the kingdom. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture, good things. The thief comes only to steal, steal and kill and destroy. I came that you, others, may have life and have it abundantly. God wants us to live abundantly. If we're not living abundantly, something's wrong and we can get that corrected for sure. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So it's not just that we're to become childlike so we can enter the kingdom of God, but God wants to pour out enough into us and upon us abundantly. I love that about him. But in our own text for tonight, he mentions a couple other things. Look at verses 29 and 30. As we close, as 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 Mark closes this section. In verse 29, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake or the gospels, but 
will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. A hundred times. That blows my mind. So it's not like, oh, I've got to become a Christian so I get to the kingdom of heaven and God's going to strip me of everything and I'm just beat up. But at least I get to go to heaven. Right? Honestly, that would be okay. By itself, that should be and would be okay. But he says a hundred times as much of what you had blows my mind. You will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age and in the age to come eternal life. Both. Wow, are you kidding me? We hold on to so much. God wants to give us so much more if we just let go and give it to Him. So we are to become childlike in our discipleship, aren't we? Not childish, (laughs) but childlike. If it was about being childish, I would be one incredibly mature believer. I'm telling you that right now, as many of you know. This is an announcement that children were better kingdom examples than the adults. Children are better kingdom examples than are adults. I'm telling you, I, I, I'm so, I'm 51. I'm fascinated by young people. I am so fascinated by young people the older I get. If they want to talk to me, I'm always fascinated by that, right? But I'm just fascinated by young people. What God's doing in their lives and how they think and what God can do with them, it just blows my mind. Praise the God. Praise God for the young people of our church. Praise God for the leaders that are working with our young people. Thank you all for working with our young people. We have so much to learn from them. I'm thankful for that. So often we hope and expect and tell our children to behave like adults, but here we see Jesus tell the adults to model themselves after children. It's pretty cool. And here's why. This is what we know about children. Children live by faith. Listen, church, this is what, this is what Jesus is wanting us to, to learn. Children live by faith. They trust. They humbly depend upon others to care for them, to see them through. Is this how we engage our Father, our Heavenly Father? They are open and receptive. They are inquisitive learners. And then they believe what they learn. They accept themselves for who they are and their position in life. Boy, that's a big one for many of us, isn't it? I used to beat myself up a lot for who I was and the things that I didn't think were quite going the way I would like them to. But over the last few years, I've just really come to accept my position in life. My life was not like many other people's lives, but that's okay. God loves me exactly where I'm at for who I am and says, give me what you got. Let me do what I want to do with what you have. God can do so much with so little. They recognize, children do, that they are insignificant weak and helpless. A child enjoys much but can explain very little. That's, a, that's, that's, that's true of a lot of us in our walk where we enjoy a lot. We don't maybe understand a lot. Some of us are newer in the faith, but we enjoy much and at times can explain very little. Too often we think we know so much and that's what gets us in trouble. And it usually leads us to arguing. It leads to division and broken relationships. When a child is hurt 
or has a problem, they go to their parents without hesitation. Is that what we do? We enter God's kingdom like children, helpless, unable to save ourselves, and totally dependent on the mercy and grace of God to care for us and our daily needs. Amen? Check out verse 16. Closes this stanza when it says he ends up taking the children in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Oh man, that verse just gripped me so, so tenderly and so powerfully. This looks and sounds marvelous to me. That Jesus would take children, that's what he wants to do with us, in his arms and blesses them and lays his hands on them. Now that, when we read that, it might seem elusive to us. But I don't think it's supposed to be elusive to us. When we unlearn adulthood and come like a child to our loving Lord, He takes us in His arms. Many of us have experienced that. Where we just feel that God just carried us and held us. We can experience that when we come to Him as a child. And it says He began to bless them. There's more blessings coming. He just began to bless. And He wants to bless and bless and bless because He loves us. We're His children. So he takes us in his arms, and for me that just reminds me of protection. And he begins to bless, and I think that that's his provision. God just wants to provide us with blessing upon blessing. And then he says his hands are upon him. He laid his hands on them, and for me that's direction. Just what a shepherd would do for a sheep. He would protect, he would provide, and he would give sheep direction. It's amazing to me. So the blessings of the kingdom are to be received as a child. And we enter through responsive faith and obedience. How childlike are you with your Lord? Last thoughts before we move to the next stanza. By taking the children in his arms, Jesus did more than what he was actually asked to do in the beginning verses. They just said in verse 13 that he might touch them. But he actually does more than that. He takes them in his arms. He blesses them and he touches them. That's what Jesus does. When we come to Him as children, He does more than we even ask or imagine. Abundantly, above, beyond all that we could ask or imagine is how Jesus wants to deal with us. There was also a fulfillment of prophecy in Isaiah 40, verse 11. It says, like a shepherd, He will tend His flock. In His arm or in His arms, He will gather the lamb and carry them in His bosom and He will gently lead them. Parents, Bless you for bringing your children to Jesus. But parents, make sure that you're bringing yourself to Jesus as a child as well. Our kids are watching. Our second stanza, The Power of One, Mark 10, 17-22. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone, which he's confirming what he's noticing, that Jesus is indeed God. He says, you know the commandments, and he lists them. He says, I've kept all these ever since I was young. Verse 21, And Jesus looked at him and felt love for him and said, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But he went away sad and grieving. What a sad, sad verse. One of the saddest verses in the Bible Apparently, as I, when I was doing a little bit of homework, and I can understand why. 
the heading, if you will, in your Bibles probably says the rich young ruler, but this can be a little bit misleading here in Mark because all we get from Mark in the last verse 22 of the stanza is that it says he owned much property. We actually have to look at Luke 18 and Matthew 19. Look at Luke 18, Matthew, Mark, Luke, just so just so you kind of know where this is coming from. All it says here is that he had many possessions. Luke 18, 18 and 23. Luke 18, 18. The heading there says the rich young ruler, and it starts off by saying, A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So that's where we find out in the same story that it's he's a ruler. And then in verse 23, when he heard these things, he was sad, for he was extremely rich. And so we have the ruler part, and now we have the rich part. We don't quite get that in, in, in Mark. Um, verse 22 just says he owned much property. And then in Matthew 19 is where we find out that he's young. Matthew 19, verse 22. Matthew 19, 22 says, But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he owned much property. And so that's how we piece all that together. It's a little bit incomplete in Mark, but that's where we get the rich young ruler. We have to put all the Gospels together. In other words, this guy had it all. This guy had it all. Who doesn't want to be rich when they're young? and in charge as a ruler. It's what our world strives for. And on some level, that was me in my early 30s. I was making a lot of money in the business world. And I, I, I sales managed three different companies for the same owner. It was a handful. So I was young, I was well paid, and I had authority. And I think, if I can recall correctly, spiritually I was a train wreck. Honestly, it's just a problem for me. The Lord didn't keep me there for long, and I think if, if He allowed me to stay there, it probably wouldn't have been a pretty picture, if I'm being honest. This guy had it all. Last week we discussed marriage and, of course, divorce. In a relationship such as marriage, we can do numerous things perfectly in a marriage or in any relationship and do things by the book, but it only takes one thing to blow a relationship up, doesn't it? It only takes one thing to blow something up. Look at the good things that the rich young ruler does in our context. He ran up to Jesus. In verse 17, a man ran up to him and knelt before him. So he runs up to Jesus and he kneels before him in 17, which is an action of true humility for a ruler and a rich one at that. He calls him good teacher in verse 17. Jesus affirms this by his response by Um, affirming to him, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. In other words, you're right, I am good because I'm God. And then he inquires about uh, eternal life in verse 17. How can I inherit eternal life? These are great things so far. He runs to Jesus. He bows down before him. He calls him good teacher. He inquires about eternal life. He's doing all these wonderful things. He knows, it says, that he, that he knew and he, and he kept, in verse 19, all these commandments since he was young. But, but, all of that, all of those things that I just mentioned are wiped out because of one thing. Jesus tells him this one thing you lack is preventing you to come and follow me. In verse 21, one thing you lack, get rid of your stuff and come, follow me. One thing blew up his relationship with Jesus. 
often we are very much in touch with what we do well, but not so much in touch with what we lack. So often we're very much in touch with the things we do well, as this rich young ruler was. He knew what he did well, and he did a lot of things well, but he was out of touch with the thing that he did not do well, as many of us are. Check this out, 1 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. What a great verse. Paul writes this, he says, But to me it's a small thing that I be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself. Yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. In other words, you may not see something to me, I may not see something to me, but I've got to constantly be putting myself before God's Word so that He can examine my life and go, oh yeah, that's ugly. Oh yeah, that's ugly. God's Word's a life changer on so many levels. If you were to encounter Jesus, what would He say is the one thing you lack? You were to run up to Jesus, kneel before Him and say, good teacher. And you would say, there's one thing you lack. What would it be? Maybe maybe you'd be like me and you'd say, give me a minute. And you pull out this big piece of paper and you say, how much time you got? Right? But typically there's one thing that really, there's a wedge between us and the Lord. It's usually one thing. And I think that's what the story is trying to tell us, is what is that one thing that you lack? Humble yourself like a child and ask the Holy Spirit or others that know you well. What's the one thing I lack? Be willing to do that. I challenge you. Great challenge for all of us. What do I lack? This was apparently horrible news for the rich young ruler, as it says in verse 22, he went away saddened and grieving. But it should have been great news. Because when I ask that question, a lot of us probably like, I don't know what that one thing is. Jesus at least told him. I love that about our God. He's so just. He's so fair. He's so loving. He's so kind to say, this is the one thing you lack. God wants to tell us. It should have been great news for him. But what also burdened me that's not recorded in Scripture is he went away saddened and grieving. What must have Jesus felt at that time? That he would choose wealth and choose his riches and choose his possessions over Jesus Christ that came for him. It must have been really hard for our Lord. So, what did he lack? What was the problem? While he did a lot of good and right things for the Lord, Jesus was not his Lord. He did a lot of things for the Lord, but Jesus was not his Lord. His possessions were. Being rich, being young, and being a ruler. Being rich, being young, and being a ruler. Those all go away. Those are all temporary. You will, ne- No matter how much money you have, you will never outlive your money. You will die. We all die. So that's temporary. And when you die, you're no longer a ruler. That's temporary. And I know firsthand that I'm not young anymore either. As many of us know that firsthand as well. But that's what the rich young ruler chooses to follow. And what is so interesting is that Jesus wasn't trying, this is so cool, Jesus wasn't trying to reduce this man. He was trying to multiply him. He wasn't trying to reduce this man and tear him down. He wanted to multiply him, which we discussed already in verse 30. He wanted to give him so much, a hundredfold, 
and eternal life. Jesus wants to multiply us. But we do things that cause us to be reduced in reality. Sin, we understand, is rebellion against the holy God. Not only by certain actions, but also an inward attitude that exalts ourself and defies our God. The rich young ruler had a superficial view of the law of God, and he measured obedience only by external actions and not by inward attitudes. I don't know why I thought of a blow pop, right? For the rich young ruler. Everything outward looked nice and hard and firm, but inside it was just gooey and messy. I think that's a blow pop, right? It's dumb inside. I don't know. And I think we do that sometimes. We, 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 we do all this stuff on the outside, but the inside is just gooey and messy and sticky. While the rich young ruler's actions that, he, that we see in this, in this stanza, they appear blameless. His inward attitudes were not, for he was covetous. Covetousness is a terrible sin because it's subtle and difficult to detect. Yet it can cause a person to break all the other commandments. And that's what was going on here. Check out 1 Timothy. Turn there to 1 Timothy to our right of the book of Mark before Hebrews, I think. 1 Timothy 6, 8-12. through 12. First Timothy 6, 8 through 12. Good stuff. Verse 8. If we have food and covering or clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation. And that was me. I grew up poor. I grew up lacking. And I felt like I needed to prove myself and prove my worth by pursuing a, a, a nice income. There's nothing wrong with a nice income, but I was doing it for a lot of the wrong reasons, trust me. But for those who want to get rich, fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge us into ruin and destruction. For it doesn't say this, and you guys have probably heard this before, so many people misquote this. It doesn't say for money is the root of all sorts of evil, but the love of money, because no one should replace our love of God, not even money, right? For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you men and women of God. Pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love, perseverance and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Great verse. Great verses. Money was the God that he trusted and worshipped. Money was the God that he trusted and worshipped. Matthew 6.34, many of us know this verse. says, we cannot serve two masters. Why? We either hate the one and love the other, or we will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. One commentary says it's difficult to receive a gift, in this case the kingdom of God, right? Receive it as a child when our fists are clenched around money and possessions and whatever else fill in the blank. Jesus did not teach that wealth is evil. He did not teach that. Make sure you hear me, church. He did not teach that poverty is better than riches. He did not teach that only the poor can be saved. He did teach that discipleship is costly and that wealth often is a hindrance to repentance and acceptance of the gospel. 
And I think that explains the wording of verse 31 in Mark chapter 10. Check it out. When he says, but many who are first will be last. Not all, but many who are first in this world, who are rich and who are young and who are rulers and pursue wealth. They might be first in this world, but not all of them. Many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Had this man truly trusted in the goodness of God, which he says to him in verse 18 when he says, good teacher, had he truly trusted that God was good, he would have welcomed Jesus' command as God's best for him to get rid of his stuff because God knew that stuff was hindering him from a relationship with him. And so if he knew and really recognized God as being good, he would have said, you must know better. And got rid of exactly what God asked him to get rid of. So that is a descriptive verse, not prescriptive, meaning we're just describing what happened to the rich young rulers. It's not prescribed for the whole church to sell their stuff. Okay? Our third stanza, rich man, poor man, and we're gonna, I'm gonna cut off after this one, just for time's sake, and that's okay. Let's read Mark 10, 23 through 27. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And they were amazed. And he says again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. He doesn't even say rich people. He's saying anyone. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished and said, well, then who? Who can be saved? Perfect question. With people, it's impossible, but not with me. For all things are possible with God. The disciples were shocked at the Lord's declaration about wealth. Most Jews thought that possession of great wealth was the evidence of God's special blessing. But it was a faulty belief. The story of Job would have indicated as much if they knew the story of Job, as many of you I'm sure do. As mentioned, Jesus did not condemn riches as evil in themselves. Riches can be a temptation and a hindrance. Riches provide false security, which makes Radical trust in God, difficult. I want to have a radical trust in God. I do. And for me, that wasn't going to happen if I was pursuing an income. It just wasn't. I saw it happening. It wasn't pretty. Money is a marvelous servant, but a terrible master. If you possess money, be grateful and use it for God's glory. Many of us know people that do exactly that. But if money possesses you, beware. The deceitfulness of riches has so choked the soil of the rich young ruler's heart that he wasn't able to receive the good seed of the Word and be saved. And we know about that from the soils, don't we? Remember Matthew 13.22 about the four different types of soils. The one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns. This is the man, the rich young ruler, who hears the Word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth Choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. What about this camel? What about this camel and this the eye of the needle? This contrast, the, the, the largest animal in, 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 in Palestinian culture, and then this tiny little needle, the eye of a needle, is intended to indicate the impossibility of not just a rich person, but also in verse 24, Anyone else for that matter, the impossibility of trying to enter the kingdom of God by doing something for himself or herself. It's impossible. We can't do it. And so that's what Jesus came for. To carve out a path for us. 
And that's what verse 27 is all about. With people, it's impossible. Right? Because it's what it says in verse 26. Who can be saved? You can't. With you, it's impossible. There's nothing you can do. But with God, all things are possible. I'm going to end there. Let me pray. When I'm done praying, of course, our prayer team is available over here in the corner to my left. Good to be with you guys. Love you so much. Love this church. Thank you for going through God's Word with me. Such a privilege. Let me pray. God, thank You for this foundational Scripture for discipleship. God, we need to know this. And we thank You that You're clear with us. Lord, help us to embrace You like children. Lord, to the degree that we are so full of our adulthood and our maturity, Lord, just purge us from that so that we can embrace You as children do. To trust You. To have faith in You. In everything. God, You're so good to us. We praise Your holy and precious name. Amen.